Hello and welcome back to Motorsport Mentality, the podcast that pauses for thought with the people driving the world's fastest sport. My name is Damien Meaden. So, my guest today is a legend of the British Touring Car Championship. With three titles, 63 race wins and 193 podium finishes from just over 700 starts, as well as representing global brands across his career like Vauxhall and probably most notably Honda. His rivalry with fellow champion Jason Plato came to define the championship for a generation before my guest today stepped back from the cockpit in 2020 and went into managing his family-run outfit, Team Dynamics. Today, we'll be going behind the visor with a true legend of British motor racing. So let's get into the conversation. This is Matt Neal on Motorsport Mentality. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today. I've just given people an introduction to you as a racing driver. I'd like you now, if you could, to fill in the rest. What's Matt Neal the person like? Hey, Damien. Um, I, uh, what a, that's a good question. Um, I suppose I'm a very competitive individual. I like to think um, to the point where I will push the boundaries. Um, I'm, I don't mind losing. You know, I, I, I want to win, but not at all costs. I don't mind losing as long as it's done fairly. And I think I've given my all and, and everything. We had um, a particular race in, in Australia in, um, in uh, the late 90s. And we finished second. And I thought it was one of my best races ever. But we'd never won it. So, uh, as I say, I, the difference between me and certain other individuals <laughs> I've had run-ins with over the years. I, I don't mind losing. I can take that. But it's just, it's just the way you do it and the way you conduct yourself along the way. And, you know, I try and work hard on the track and off the track away, away from it at all as well. So what are you like as a person when you're not doing racing? What what makes you tick? What do you enjoy? You're quite keen on your mountain biking as well, aren't you? Although that's that's given you a few injuries over the years. I guess I, I've got myself in trouble over the years. I, I, I like fun. I like a bit of mischief. Um, I like helping people. Um, so, and I've probably got myself into a, a bit of bother and, and things I shouldn't have done just, just because I like the fun and the bit, bit of crack with my mates and you know, anybody really. Um, and I say that's why things with me and sort of Jason over the years got out of hand because he's got a mischievous side to me and uh, to him and I have to me. And that's why I think that got out of hand. But it's just, um, yeah, I'm still big into the sport. I always have been. Um, I, I had an elder sister who wasn't into sport at all. And I was completely opposite. She was very academic. I wasn't academic, but I was, I just loved the sports side. So it, whether it's riding a bike, you know, playing ball or um, you know, driving a car for a living. So I'm going to rewind this, uh, you know, right back to the beginning, to your formative years. Where does that bug from motor racing come from? Well, you know, it's it sounds cliche, but when everyone's sort of about four or five years old and you get the things you want to do in life and you want to be an astronaut, a fireman or whatever, I just wanted to race cars. My dad, my dad raced, but I don't really remember him racing. I have one memory of him because he sort of retired as I... Um, as I was, as I was just after I was born. I remember him being delivered back from the Nurburgring after a massive accident, and I was about two. And he got dropped off and propped up at the front door, all in bandages and bandages across his head and everything. And they scarpered to avoid the wrath of my mum. And I remember just stood at the bottom of his bed, watching, looking at him, and he was all bust up. And I thought, that's my dad, and I felt really bad. But it never detracted me. That all I wanted to do was was drive and it was, it was the speed thing. I just used to go, he bought me a little motorbike in the garden 
and I used to go round and round and round from dawn till dusk, nicking, siphoning fuel at the cars and anything I could. Just, just, I just loved it. So you've mentioned your dad, who was obviously a very talented racer in his own right. I'm curious as to what extent you feel the talent you had was inherited, or to what extent was it nurtured? I think my my dad and I are very different people. Um, he was he was a very driven individual. He was a very fiery individual. Don't get me wrong, I can I can have my moments, but I'm I've got a softer side like my mum. I will give, and you know, my my dad and I got into conflict over the years because just he he was so he was a driving force behind me. Um, but I yeah, I think he would drive flat out till it crashed, and then he would pull it back a level. I think in his career, I would build up. Um, probably, I think I don't like crashing very much. I'm good. At, I seem to be, I, I, I've done it a fair bit over the years, but um, yeah, we are quite different people. So I'm interested in the key characteristics that made you so successful, particularly over such a, a prolonged period of time. What would you put the success you've had down to at sort of a, a core level in your being? Um, you've obviously got to have a bit of, bit of belief um, in yourself, determination, because um, which a lot of youth don't have these days. You know, if it doesn't come easy, they, they don't want it. And, you know, there's probably a, a, a more than a handful of times in my career where I thought it was all over. And you just go to you hear this with Mansell when he was going, Nigel Mansell, when he was, you know, remortgaged his house to for the last little bit. And I, I can remember getting this ugh, loads of times. I've got to weeks before the beginning of the season, thought it wasn't in there, and suddenly something's dropped out, out the air into my into my hands, and I've just grabbed it. Or I've I've received a phone call. Will you come and drive for us? Or will you do this? Or will you come down and see us and talk about it? And you know, but it's just belief, and it's you know. And in the nineties, um, I was talking to uh, to Bobby Bobby Thompson at um, Team Hard, and he, he was frustrated about the competitiveness of the car he's got. I mean, what you don't realise in the nineties, you couldn't compete. You know, you didn't have the same tyres, the same engines, and it, it was so unfair. But you know, that's why we used to do double backflips if we got a top ten finish, and everyone did, because. It wasn't a level playing field, but you still fought and did, did the best you could. And that's what a lot of people these days can't get their head around unless they got a chance of winning. Um, they don't want to play at all. And how useful for that was you as a as a driver in your early years as well? Because I think now when you get thrust into touring cars, you know, you, you swim or you sink. Whereas actually you had the opportunity over several years, as you say, it's not a level playing field. You can't always turn up and beat the works team. So you were able to develop and grow as a driver um perhaps not quite out of the spotlight um but you probably didn't have such a um such an intense um spotlight on you if that makes sense at the beginning did that help may, i don't know maybe uh we, we you, you do have other pressures though i mean you had to back then you had to climb the ladder to to earn your spurs to earn your experience when i think my first race in touring cars i was 25 years old i was the only driver on the grid under the age of 30 put it out into context the amount of teenagers you've got on the grid now because they just fast track straight in because now with with technology and all the data and everything it's without being horrible it's monkey see monkey do so they can see exactly what you're doing how you're doing it and they can just go out and replicate it when i started and the likes of clennand and soper and rouse and co you had no data 
if I was a second lap slower than you, I, I had no idea. If you don't want to tell me and help me, I just have to go out there and find it and figure it out and try and follow you. And, you know, you, there was no data or nothing like that to, to watch. It's literally, that's, that's why you had to climb the ladder because you got used to the speed of the cars and you learnt your, your craft um, on how to set up cars and which a lot, a lot of kids don't understand now. They just rely on their engineers totally. I'm interested as somebody who's been around touring cars for quite a long time, how quickly when somebody comes into the championship, can you tell if they've got it or not? Because there are people who rock up for a year or two and then disappear into the ether. How quickly can you spot an Ash Sutton, a Tom Ingram to use some recent examples and go, you're, you're going to be here for quite a while. Yeah. I remember when Ashley first came in and he started getting his elbows out and I thought, right, he's going to have it. <laughs> yeah, I thought you know he, he obviously did seem quite special at the time, but he wasn't if, if afraid to ruffle a few feathers. When I started, you had to have respect um, because you would get a hard time, um, and he was doing it the other way around. But um, it's difficult because some people flourish as as time goes on, and some people aren't in the right car with the right team uh, or with the right engineer. I think I think you've got the likes of, of Dan Camish. At, at Motorbase this year and in BTC and da I really rate Dan he's lovely but he's he's got to be in the right you know a happy Dan is a fast Dan he always used to say to us and you've got to to cuddle him and everything and when you put him in the right frame and the right environment um he's ultra fast and uh, and, and very very good and I, I don't think he's really got got everyone around him that he needs at the moment to sort of really put the pressure on Ashley which I think he could it's difficult, isn't it? Because when you look at Napa as they are at the moment, it's um, not to turn this into a, a commentary on touring cars, but it does very much sometimes feel like Ash Sutton's team plus others, I think. Yeah, I think the relationship with Ashley and Tony Caruso, his engineer, is, is just, it's like I used to be with Barry, but they are very much focused on Ash and um, fair play, it works. Wherever they've gone, it works. And so as a, another driver in that team, that's what you're not facing just Ash, you're facing the partnership. Uh, which is which is a tough one to to go up against. Yes, tip of the iceberg. The the other side of touring cars, of course, away from uh, competition is the commercial side. Um, as we know, motorsport is um, it's not a, a cheap game to get into. You away from racing have very successful family businesses. How much has that commercial um, nous, for want of a better phrase, how much has that helped you? Um, you know, achieve real longevity to your career because dynamics didn't just go racing. You went racing well. Um, and it strikes me that sort of the bedrock of that was great partnerships, whether that's with a manufacturer or, or with great long-term sponsors. Um, so how valuable have, have those business skills been as well? Yeah, a lot of people might have the misconception that we, we come from an ultra-wealthy family and we've just dipped our hands in our pockets and the business has paid for it, which is we couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, when I started in one make fiestas or motorbikes, I used to save up and buy my, my bike or we used to put pressure i used to have to go out and find the sponsorship for everything and we did put a little bit in over the years or, or the way we did it originally we used to put pressure on um suppliers if we were buying off them could they put in 500 pounds a thousand pounds five thousand you know anything they could um and try and generate the budget that way and that's that's where we came up with the business model which we used in latter years with max power um, for their advertising revenues and, and Halfords with their suppliers. And we tried to move it over to Honda. It's, it was trying to, to generate it anyway, because 
we all want to make a living out of motorsport, but motorsport's really hard to make a living out of. And so if you, you commit to it full time, I've said to, to younger drivers, you've got to be very careful because you can go from feast to famine in the blink of an eye, literally over, over a Christmas break. And so I always try to, I always said you need a fallback plan. And I never gave up work. And I used to, even though when I was being paid well by manufacturers, I, I would be racing on the Sunday, get home at midnight, and I'd be at the office on eight o'clock, nine o'clock on a Monday morning. A bit bleary-eyed, but I'd be there because that would help me through the... I, one, I enjoyed it. The businesses complemented each other because we were automotive. Um, and one door opened another one for, for each side. Um, but it just paid the mortgage as well, so it kept me going. Yeah, I can testify to that too, actually, because you saying that has made me remember each year, obviously, everybody goes and congregates at the Autosport show. And I always remember sort of even at the peak of your touring car career, you turn up on a Thursday, Friday in a, in a rimstock uniform. And then Saturday, Sunday, you'd magically arrive in, in Honda Uasa racing kit and you, you'd sort of transform from from Matt Neal from rimstock into into Matt Neal, the touring car driver. So there is a there is a funny, um, we'll call it a double life going on. Um but I definitely and then see on, the, on the Wednesday before, I'd be there building the stand and breaking down on Sunday Sunday night, and they'd be going. People would walk up to me and going, "What are you doing? Really? What are you doing doing this?" And I'm going, "Well, yeah, we all have to do something as well, don't we?" So, Team Dynamics, um, a very high-performing organisation. I'd like to sort of um, get an idea for you. What are the what are the traits and the behaviours that you used to look for for people to bring into your camp? Because you know, I, I noticed the same faces year after year. It very much felt like a family team dynamics. Um, I'm curious as to what you used to look for in people to put them in your corner. Um, well, B- Barry Plowman, who I, who's been with with me over 25 years, he, he, he's really he leads from the front on that respect, and he has a work ethic where of, of perfection. And so we we bring in young people. And um, and they, they would sort of be. It's always say you don't drop a good apple into a, into a barrel full of rotten ones because it'll become rotten. But you could drop any apple into a, a barrel of good ones, and they would they would bring up you know like a, a new puppy would learn off the dogs above it. Mm-hmm. And that's Barry because he he sort of got that work ethic going of just leaving nothing to chance, perfection, um, which had been grafted into him from his early years. And I sort of. A lot, a lot of our successes are down to Barry as, as well as everything else, really. The other thing I'd just like to touch on as well as a team was the, the level of consistency. You know, you guys were in touring cars for pushing 30-odd years, many of those years at the front. How do you achieve that sustainable success over so many years? Because I see so many teams, they might win the championship and two years later they're fifth. And it, But you guys seem to come back year after year and always hit the sweet spot and you were changing cars every two or three years as well so it's not like you turned up with the same rinse and repeat operation every year so how did you keep that success sustainable um i think you just learn what works and what doesn't work in in your you know in your um in your arena you know we had a very good engine partner an excellent one of the best in the world i'd say neil brown engineering um, and he was, he's always has been first class. He'd won a major championship for every year for 20 years, I think. Um, and he was, you know, you need the engines, the heart of your, the heart of the car, isn't it? And so working closely with Neil was a real, um, was a real pleasure. And, um, I was very lucky to work with him for over 20 years and he's, he's 
exceptionally competitive and uh, clever individual. Um, so the company, you know, it's just, it's just uh, the people you get around you. And my dad was a, a driving force behind it as well. He was very driven. If we, if we won a race or or um, did well in one year, we before while we were patting ourselves on the back, he'd be going right. Uh, forget that. How are you going to win the next one or the championship or the next championship? Or he'd be looking at the next model of car and. I, I'd be almost wanting to play it safe and he'd be he'd always be pushing us out of our comfort zone on what where to go and what to do next how much uh, of a degree during those years did you have to change cars based on the commitment to Honda as well I sort of mentioned you guys used to change cars every few years um, how easy or, or conversely how difficult was it to also go looking for that that new car that next challenge but also make sure that it, it's ticking the commercial boxes a lot um and also with the the commercial partners as like alfords and everything you know we we want we were trying to keep because like in every organization say honda there's people who are pro the program but there's people there who aren't and they're trying to do anything and say anything to you know give it negative vibes and so they can go and sponsor golf or tv advertising or whatever so you know, we knew the Type R wasn't coming in the um, early teens, and um, so we Honda were almost losing interest. So we came up, we came up with the concept of running the the, the Civic Tourer for a season, but to, to try try and generate interest. And we went to them with a with an ideas. Uh, you know, you go to a new market. We were going to the caravan show with with Bailey Caravans, and um, you know, it opened up a different market to them. Even if they sold CRVs for for caravans, not not Civic Tourers, and and it worked well. It was a it was a great success. And then the Type R came, and so then we changed again. And so it was just yeah, you, you constantly move, and you come. It's trying to be entrepreneur or trying to come up with ideas why why sponsors or manufacturers will do it rather than just carrying on and taking the money and rolling the same thing out. And I think to give people um, some context, to what you're saying earlier about you guys didn't just. Um, chuck a ton of money at this every year you used to use the same base chassis and configure them into the different models did you not if i've understood that correctly yeah the um the original um chassis that uh flash one with the beginning of ngc got stripped down and then they got made into tourers and then they got made it back into type r's after that so the the tourers don't exist anymore they because they all got um stripped down literally because a modern btc car is almost like a space frame anyway bar the floor and yeah, the cage. So uh, it's um, yeah, all the panels and everything went went into Type R. I don't know what they are now. With there's about eight somewhere, but there, were, there weren't heaps. You know, there weren't dozens. There was there's about eight of the FK twos, and there's probably about seven or eight of the FK eights as well. Have you kept any of your cars? I've got two of the original FK twos, um, which is Flash won his championship and was my last uh, my sixteen car. So um, we've got those because Henry, my Henry was using one uh, and we got the other one back from um, Matt Simpson. So, yeah, we've got those, but no FK8s. Was the Matt Simpson one the one that had the big crash in Spain? I remember. Yeah, was... He did in one. We've still got that one as well, hmm. uh, which is a little bit wounded still. It was um, he was a lucky boy. It was like a plane crash, that one. I'm going to uh, rewind it slightly and, and have a chat with you about your BTCC career. You were saying earlier about working your way up the ranks. To what extent did you thrive off being the underdog, for want of a better uh, phrase, for the first few years? Um, I think it's what I got known for, wasn't it? And everyone likes an underdog who can, who's maybe got a potential of winning. 
and in the mid 90s we could ruffle some feathers and we got it depends what tires you got and all this sort of stuff because there was a tire war going on you know you got Dunlop v Michelin v Yokohama v Pirelli and um, you get on the good tires and suddenly the, the cars come alive and um, so we could have one really good year and then one really really crap one um, just for the tires you're on so and then it got into the the, the late 90s 98 99 and then 2000 and the tires became the same we got the same tires as the factory cars and then suddenly you have got a chance of winning races and getting up there and competing and we, we were sponsored by max power at that point max power magazine which was a cult following and they all loved that because we used to do things that weren't conventional and were a bit sort of risque you know you couldn't get away with now but they loved that yeah, the, the the general public loved that because we were naughty. We were naughty, but we were professional about it and in our job. And we would go and ruffle the feathers of the of the you know the blue chip corporates. Controlled mischief. Um, the touring car regulations changed in two thousand and one. You were briefly with Peugeot and then went went off to do European touring cars, but in Super Touring. Uh, why did that switch happen? Um, I think uh, we went with Peugeot and. Um, it was headed up by Mick Limford, and I was up for doing it. The cars weren't exciting after driving a Super Tour, <laughs> Super Tour I must admit, the, the original BTC cars, but they were, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a good formula um, they'd come up with. But um, I was, there was uh, three of us, Danny Eves, Steve Soper, and myself signed. I was the third one to sign, and I was actually taking, I got some sponsors hang, left over from Super Touring, so I asked if I could take these sponsors into Peugeot and, and have a cut off the, off the top of it, which they agreed. And then it was a bit naughty. What they did is Peugeot pulled back and they, after the round one, they said uh, they got some of the budget cut. Um, and they said, right, it's last in, first out. So you were the third one to sign. So you, even though I'd been the quicker of the three, but then they, they, flicked me but then tried to go to my sponsors and keep all my sponsors and then offered more space on the car than I they'd been paying before I was lucky that the sponsors stayed with me and walked and we used that sponsorship to go and do a um, you know a variety of rounds in in European touring cars and then I got an offer to do a few rounds in in Aussie V8s then as well after after we'd been there in the late 90s so I kept the program going, and then at the end of that year, I just got a phone call out the blue from Ian Harrison um, at Triple Eight Vauxhall. So, and then that sort of kicked my career back off again. How different a feel was it going back into touring cars, not with dynamics? It was it, it was strange because um, dynamics was still in it, um, albeit it was a different class structure at, at, at that point, but. I was just so chuffed to be in it because the Vauxhall was just, it was the weapon of choice then, you know, you would win. Um, even though I was in the egg team, there was there was a, you know, two teams, the, the factory cars and the egg cars. So I was in one of the egg bank cars. Um, so much so that um, the Vauxhall was so fast in qualifying that they would only let us use 70% throttle. Um, otherwise we'd be too quick. And I worked out after about two rounds, I worked and they used to do it manually. They used to adjust it with a bolt behind the, the pedal. They used to wind it out until, until they saw on the computer that you're at 70%. So I worked it out if, just before qualifying. If I got in the car and stamped on the 
pedal as hard as I could, I could bend the bolt and get about another three or four percent throttle. And I got away with this for about two rounds and they picked it up on it's that bloody data again. And they picked it up on the data. I think uh, Jimmy Thompson picked it up and they went. And uh, Raf, who, who runs Swindon now, he was the, our, our engine guy at AAA. And he goes, ah, oh. I said, look, I can't help it if I've got big feet, you know, and heavy feet. He said, it's no problem. We'll just turn you down to 67% throttle and then you can work your way to it. Okay, you've got me. Fair enough. Fair cop. And I had to, to stop it. Your feet magically became smaller yeah, in an but it's just looking. Everyone's looking for an edge, aren't they? No, it's the fine margins. I didn't know that. That's brilliant. Um, fast forward a couple of years and uh, di- with back with Dynamics and um, you built the Integra. How much of a career defining year was that for you? And how much of a career defining choice to, to go and put that program together? Well, if I wind back a bit a bit further, we, we self-built a Mondeo in, um, in the mid to late 90s um, when we thought we were getting the Ford job and the thing was a horror story. It was just... All it wanted to do was turn sharp left or sharp right while you're doing 150 mile an hour in a straight line. And it was it was just horrific. And I got out at the end of the year and I kissed the floor because I'd never got to get back in that thing again. It was it was horrendous. And then we built the Integra and um, went to test it at Silverstone. And the thing handled exactly the same way as the Mondeo had almost 10 years before it. And I was just pale white by the time I got out of it. I thought, oh, my God, I've got, I've got to endure another season of this. And they took it back and revised it literally by small amounts, um, the strut angles and, and this on the front. And they made it better, but it was still very edgy to drive. Um, and I thought, well, we'll go, we'll go to the first race at Donington and we'll just um, we'll see how we get on. But the Neil Brown engine was good. Um, and um, bugger me, we, we managed to steal a win at the first one, which was which was mega. But um, and it went from there. The, the thing was very strong. The Integra was really strong. So if you, you know, BTC is tough, you get the hits. And I think um, as sort of uh, Jason and Ivan, you know, was in the Voxel at that point, they were they were dishing it out and I could take it, which was which was great. It got us through the year. It was great. You mentioned Donington, actually. I watched that event back not a week ago in the hotel um, at Knock Hill, which really dates when we're recording this. But um, I've just got to say, what a move that was on a van, the one you pulled when you got the win. I think I just hadn't showed my nose in it and he, he got comfortable. He wasn't happy afterwards. If you've ever seen a van raging, he wasn't he wasn't chuffing afterwards. <laughs> but it was, um, I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it to come off, but you've got to go for things in life, haven't you? So um, it was one of those, yeah, it was a good one to pull. I'm interested, having spent so much of your formative years as the underdog by circumstance, did you feel a little bit by 2005 that that first championship was, was a little bit overdue? You've been in the championship you know, over a decade at this point. You'd had a few years where you'd finished in and around the top three. Um, you know, By the time you get to 05, does it feel a little bit like getting the monkey off your back by winning one? Absolutely not at all. I mean, when I when I first got in, I was just so chuffed to be in touring cars and racing. Into, it, it was a dream for me. And it was for a long, long time. And I never expected to win a race, um, let alone a championship. So I just, which is, I suppose in life, whether younger or, or wherever I've been, I've never had um, said, right, I want to get there. I, one day I'm going to be in Formula One. One day I'm going to be, and you know, whatever. All I've tried to do is be the best I could at that particular point enjoy the ride try and enjoy the experience but do the best i can and try and hard as try as uh, as hard as i can 
and if that if that resulted in a race win or or, or a championship, absolutely fantastic. Um, but I never thought I'd be champion one day, let alone champion three times or you know and and done thirty years in it. So yeah, that's it's quite surreal. You you sort of pinch yourself. So if you hadn't expected to win one, I'm curious as to what extent you know you've won the championship in 2005. Do you come back a year later in 06, having sort of recalibrated your expectations, or do you sort of have to compartmentalise that and go, oh, it's great we won one. There's no guarantee we'll ever win one ever again. A hundred percent, yeah. Um, you know, I, I was. It doesn't mean I'm not competitive. I mean, in um, I think I was leading the championship in the in the Egg Vauxhall in 02 at mid-season, and it all went wrong. But I didn't cry about it. You know, I fought internally about it because there was a lot of politics going on in Vauxhall at that time, and. Uh, and everything um and i fought hard on the track with it but I, di- I didn't cry about it i just got on with it and then other doors open you know and other doors have opened since stopping btc full-time at the end of 20 was a sad day but as one do- you know other doors open and it's all part of the journey of life it's a- i say to people it's a new chapter and you've, you've got to finish a chapter at some point nothing lasts forever does it so and you, you've just got to, in, but you've got to enjoy the ride that all the way as well. Sorry to interrupt myself, um, but I just want to talk a little bit about my involvement in motorsport, and that is through my business, Meaden PR. We provide a range of promotional services for championships, teams, drivers, partners, everybody across motorsport, and that includes things like press releases, social media management graphic design, videography, websites, you name it, we can do it. If you're looking to level up your output in 2024, please do drop us a message on our social media channels and it'd be great to have a conversation. Anyway, back to the conversation you came for. Right, Jason Plato. I think you can probably count on one hand the number of interviews you've had in your life that hasn't made reference to JP. The question I'd like to ask, though, is not so much about specific incidents or who said what. How much did you need him and vice versa to achieve what you guys did to reach the levels that you did over so many years? Uh, I don't think I needed him. I don't think he needed me. But I think the championship needed us um, and the rival we brought. And, you know, I think we both benefited from it in notoriety. Um, He'd have his very passionate fan base i'd have my very passionate fan base and it was it was war you know the the hatred for for 10 years was genuine <laughs> i would have burnt his house down at some points um it's a shame because we were friends before it and we're you know we're good friends now i don't think i still trust him but i'm i'll look out for him and if he needed me i would jump in my car and i'd go and help him any day of the week i could and um you know old friends and adversaries and i think i think the the big beneficiary was the championship and and the fan base really because it was entertainment which is if i had to criticize now it's all a bit too vanilla i think ashley's a fighter he'll roll his sleeves up but and someone like tom's a good fighter on the track but they're all too nice Uh, but do they have to be because then that's the sort of woke culture that sort of manifested itself when i started if you the likes of dave coin or you know drivers if you got into the side of them they'd have you around the back and they'd give you a good hiding a clip around the ear but you couldn't do that now you couldn't even swear at them and 
is it better or, or worse? Or, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit old school. You know, I, I think if, if you come at me, I'm coming back at you. Um, I'll, I'll try and play fairly, but, you know, if you want to roll your sleeves up, I'll, I'll get stuck in. And that's what Ashley needs, someone to have a go at him in, in BTC at the moment. Is there anybody on the grid at the moment you look at and think, I think if you pulled your finger out, you could be that person? I think Josh Cook. Um, he, he's got some fire in him. Uh, and I think if he's if he was in a package that he could fight for the championship, then you you might be able to... They're good friends, but you, you could see some... Jason and I were good friends, you know, years and years ago. Um, you could see some sparks, some good sparks between Josh and Ashley. Um, maybe and because he'll fight you hard on, on and off the track, I would have thought. Jake Hill as well. I think he's 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 a fire little fire little sod as well. I think on the track he's 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 good for getting stuck in. It is well documented now that you and JP are on better terms. I'm curious if you can say as to who extended the olive branch and was it always a given that would happen at some point? I'm sure it didn't feel like it at the height of it. I think I extended the olive branch, um, but like on social media, we had this thing. Neither of us would ever. You follow all the other drivers, but we wouldn't follow each other. And he was the one who followed me first. He, he blinked first on that side. so And I followed him straight back, you know, which is lovely. Um, I don't know. It was, it's sort of, it's slowly, there's a, you know, we tentatively sort of were nice to each other when he started. I think it's when we both weren't fighting for the championship. Um, and we were both sympathetic to each other's plight. And we were looking out for the old guard, um, you know, because you have to look out for each other. Strength in numbers. I'm going to turn that spotlight on rivalry internally as well because you had a fantastic rivalry but also a very formidable partnership with Flash, with Gordon Shedden. What were the building blocks that you guys built that relationship on? Why did it click so well? Uh, Flash came in 06 um, after Danny, uh, Danny Eves. And um, I, I suppose I just took him under my wing and I tried to teach him everything I knew, engineering-wise, race-wise and... You know, we, we had very open um, debriefs and I spent, you know, he's based up in Scotland. So and I'm in the Midlands and all the tracks, you know, a lot of the tracks are within an hour of me. So a lot of the racing, he, he had his own bedroom for 10 years at my, at my place and would, he, he sort of lived half his time down with me. So we, we became very close and we're still we're still good mates today. Um, I think he, he's just he needs to be put in the car and he is ballistically fast. And I think where I was going in my career, because of the experience I had, I think we just complemented each other because he was probably quicker than me, but I was probably a little bit more savvy on where to go and what to do with the car. And um, that's that's where it really clicked. I think the first few years he, he was he was with us, I had the edge on him um, because the tyres were a bit narrower and you had to be a little bit more finesse when Flash is a bit braveheart. He can be a bit brave, he's flat out. And so the NGTC regulations really suited him. Um, but again, the, the combination of where I was in my career and, and where he was in his and what he could do, it, it just it, yeah, it suit, we complemented each other. I wasn't going to ask this, but actually I'm really curious now, so I think I'm going to. There's obviously that, uh, that moment at Alton Park. We don't need to dwell on the details. There was a crash, um, the win and the one-two got away. That, for me, could have been a real turning point in your relationship. I wonder if you could take us a little bit fly on the wall on the first conversation you have with him when you both get back to the pit lane. I think you remember you telling me there was something like 100 Honda execs there that day as well. There was the, yeah, the, this was me 
we were going for a Honda 1-2 and um, I was second. It was a damp track, but drying track. Everyone says it was a, it was a, a moment of madness and it was a little bit, but what we'd done is we, just to explain a bit, they got an unwritten uh, thing that we had to, we weren't allowed to race until three laps from the end. This was a team rule. We just got to try and, and gap it. So three laps from the end, we're then allowed to race. And I felt I was quicker. And so I'd been, it was into Lodge, the last corner at Alton Park. The outside line was drier, um, but I'd been braking deliberately on the inside line to try and test the grip two or three laps prior. And I thought that, I believed the grip was there. Um, he braked nice and early, you know, and I went for the gap and locked up and the rest is history. But I sort of, he was in the back of the truck. I just w walked in and hold my hands up and I said, you can just punch me wherever you want. And you know, I'll take on the chin and I deserve it. And then there wasn't 100, there was 200 Honda guests there, including the MD and three other directors. And to go in, that was a difficult one. Um, but you know, when they say they're not going to go and talk to them, you, that's when you've got to talk to them and you've got to go in and we used to have to do these, um, you know, talks in hospitality and tell them what's happened. And <laughs> that wasn't an easy day, but I think it's, I gained a lot of respect from the Honda hierarchy by doing that and going and falling on my sword in front of them. It was, it was not easy, but it's all part of um, the McNeil history, I guess. You've got to take the, the rough with the smooth as well. It's all one story. How quickly did Gordon forgive you for that one? Was it just an instant, that's okay, no problem, thank you for apologising? Or did, was there a little bit of um, it just needed to dissipate? Credit to him as well, because that could have been a point where if he'd really decided he wanted to throw his toys out the pram. So I suppose there's credit due to Flash as well, equally for coming from the other side and going, do you know what, it's okay? Well, okay, but in the... Actually, because he managed to finish in fourth, fourth or he still got got through. I didn't. So in 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 the championship battle, which we were, he um, he gained on me during that race uh, more than he would have done if we'd have finished in those one two places. So that that was the silver lining to his cloud. He he lost a race win, but you know he he gained on me in the championship because I got a little bit of an edge on him in the championship at that point. But yeah, it, we moved on. So I would say you're unique in some regards for touring car drivers. You know, typically you know, everybody is there because they want to win. But I always got the sense with you that the priority was the team wins or the, or a Honda wins. I remember 2013, for example, it, it's you, Flash, Jason and AJ going to the last round. And I remember after race one, I remember I remember seeing you give an interview and you said, um, you know, the important thing is a Honda wins. So if it's not me and Flash, then we'll have to do everything we can to get Andrew over the line. Just take me inside that that mindset i think it was because it's the commercials i was i was because i had a i was one of the front men for the commercials going into honda and and the reasons why to do it and to keep the honda honda steamroller going um they didn't do it to make up the numbers they wanted you know if, if we didn't win they want to know why we went and which is very difficult because it's over the years it has been manipulated by alan alan gow and Sometimes you'd be doing a fantastic job and you'd just be handicapped because that made a better championship for him. And to go and try and explain that to Honda when you know you're doing a great job and they're going, why aren't we winning? Um, you, you're having to, it's, it's a very different, difficult story to spin and you know, to keep them enthusiastic and keep them wanting to, and hungry. Um, so I, I, I would see that and if we could 
if we could put another spin on another driver, another team, and AJ doing it or something, it's a story, and and you'd be spinning that to to Honda. So I I could see that um, always just looking at it from the commercial side, really. How hard is the process of onboarding a new manufacturer to the BTCC and then keeping them happy as well? Um, it's not easy, but it's. <sighs> You've got a, a little bit of luck involved. It's it all depends whether the the CEO and the marketing, the comms director, or whoever is into motorsport or into you know um, golf or ice skating or or whatever they're into, horse racing. You, you've got to strike a bit lucky. I mean, at Honda they used to change the MDs. They used to recycle them every three years. So you'd win their trust, and you know they, you'd be loyal to them, and you'd win their friendship and and they'd start to trust you and believe in you and then suddenly three years you're starting all over again and i think we survived about three or four mds at um who were lovely guys at at honda and then they changed um in mid 2020 and a month later we we got given our notice because the the new guy didn't get it he didn't see it so um it's as it, literally it's as simple as that so you step back from racing actively in 2020 what was it that prompted you to call time at that point? Because you'd sort of talked about it a little bit for a year or two. I remember you saying, you know, when when Halfords go, maybe I'll go with them. Um, what was it that finally made you go, do you know what, this is the year? I think Honda had given us notice and they were such a big part to our budget. Um, and I'd, I'd got to the point where the commercials have got to stack up. You've got to make a living out of it. You know, what, what are you doing it for? You know, I'd, I'd gone through the the parts the part of my career where I was just so chuffed to be there I was trying to make a living out of it and making stack up and without Honda involved commercially it didn't stack up with me and the car because any sponsorship I could get was going into the cars anyway so we needed more external sponsorship coming in and another driver with with good backing could do that so that was the prime factor and to be honest Damien I'd done it for 30 years you know, it's a long time and I was getting tired. Um, just, uh, I, I'd got nothing to prove. I, sure, I'd have loved another championship or, or another win or, or whatever, but I'd, I'd got, I got little to prove and commercially it didn't stack up. So it, it was time, really. Will you ever race in British touring cars again? Well, Alan said, I, I went to talk to Alan about it and I said, look, this is this is going to be on the cards and I'm, I'm probably going to do this. And he goes, right, we want to do a big, big um, retirement thing for you at the end of the year. I said, I, I've never been, okay, I've spent a lot of time in the spotlight, but I don't, I'm not comfortable. I'm, I'm more of an introvert personality. I'll, I'll stand there if I have to. Um, but I'm not one who just craves the spotlight. And I said, no, I don't really want to do it in one respect because... Um, I just wanted to slip off and but then I also wanted to leave the door open because we were still talking to Honda and we still talk to them to this day and and other people and you never know what door's going to open so I didn't want to do the big retirement thing then come back as some do um I just wanted to say right I'm not retiring it's just it's where my life's going at the moment and and what I'm doing and we'll see what happens really would you be sad if I said you weren't going to race another British touring car race again if there was a definite, that's it, you've done your last one, or are you sort of at peace with that? No, I'm pretty cool with it. I, I, people say, have you really missed it? No, I haven't, which is a sad thing to say, but I had done it for 30 years. You know, I've done 700-odd races, and um, would I do another one? Yes, I would do another one, but it's got to be right. You know, I've had 
offers to get back in cars off a couple of teams, couple of three teams, and I, I haven't thought it's been right at the moment. It wouldn't do me justice or them justice. Um, so, but I never say never again because you you never know what life's going to give you. So the team obviously um, decided to take a break from touring cars this year. Issued a statement saying you wouldn't race in 2023. Um, we're recording this in August, so we're sort of six months on from that now. Um, I wonder uh, if you could just give me give us an update really on on whether there are still plans to come back, and if there are, how are those coming along? Um, well, a lot of our guys have all been scattered up and down the pit lane. You know, you look at it, probably nearly every team we've got uh, one of our ex guys with. Um, so the, the the people are there, they still know us, we still know them. Um, we're still working on commercial um, uh, potentials um, and never say never. You know, it's something, it's a special place. It's, you know, it's, um, I fell out of love with touring cars, with the politics really about 10 years ago and um, probably a little bit more than that. And I really questioned doing it. And then I, I went and did a few races. I went down to Goodwood revival and I, I looked and I went I now get this historic racing lark and I did a bit of historic racing and people were were smiling at you and being nice to you in the paddock which is you know touring cars is, is cutthroat and um, it made me realize why I fell in love with the sport all the years before and I pinched myself and realized how lucky I was to be where I was in touring cars and it reinvigorated and it it gave me another 10 years in touring cars because it really it sort of injected that enthusiasm and love back into me. Um, you know, it's so, and I haven't forgotten that, you know, I, how lucky I was to be and do what I've done. Um, never say never. So we'll see what, what the doors open. Lots of doors open, but they've got to be the right ones, haven't they, at the right time. Obviously, in the meantime, you spent uh, two years as a team manager as well. How naturally did that swap come to you? Um, it's okay because I've been doing sort of, I wasn't the actual team manager, but I was more sort of team principal because my dad was getting a, a little bit sort of older. And I think me stopping racing full time hurt him more than it hurt me because he used to live it. He just lived it and breathed it for, for me. And I, I felt bad about that, um, with him, but I was, I was okay because I'd try and add something to the driving side. My dad was a very hard taskmaster on me. Um, he he didn't, you know, second was the first of the losers. He, he would, if he thought I wasn't on the money and doing it. And I, I suppose I gave Robo and Flash a pretty hard time over, t- over two years because that's what, that's the environment I'd thrived on um, over my whole career. And I, I think that's, you know, um, being the softly, softly approach, I, I think, you know, Ian Harrison at Triple Eight, he was like that. You know, he would, the old rugby mentality was him and, and he, he'd go, man up, you know, you've got to get on with it. And my dad was that with me and I, I think I was a, I was pretty tough on those two, whether they like it or not. So, yeah. Is there anything left now on your bucket list with regards to motorsport? Well, I always said I would be disappointed if I never did Le Mans. But I was lucky enough to do Classic Le Mans this year, which is not the same. But it was pretty special um, with, with Stephen Edwards, who's um, a lovely guy I, I share, sort of, um, I've been racing in the uh, two-litre Porsche in, in Europe the last 18 months. Um, and so I've done the classic one, and but never, never, I, d- I don't know. Um, 
I've never done prototype. Jason's always saying he wants to do Le Mans. You should go and do it with him. Yeah, but Le Mans, you know, I'm not the youngest kid on the block, am I, in experience and everything. And it's a, it's a massive thing now. Just getting an entry is is, is really tough. So, um, yeah, I think if I got an op- option to go back to Australia, I think that's... I'm under no illusion at how competitive it is down there and, and tough and how good the drivers are down there. Um, you've got to be very careful. Um not to sort of tarnish your reputation. The classics is is great. It's a great place to be in at the moment with the historics on the Goodwoods. I mean, what um, the Duke of Richmond's done for for Goodwood is unbelievable. It's just um, no one's ever been to the revival. It's like going to Disneyland for for motorsport people or you know for petrol heads. And um, so um, I'm obviously doing a fair bit with that. We'll be at Silverstone uh, Festival and. Um, I don't know, maybe a bit of GT racing or something. I, I never say never. So never say never with touring cars either. I'm sure you've got a British GT title in you somewhere. Um, I'd also like to chat a little bit about uh, one of your other um, hats within motorsport, which was as a commentator, particularly on the world touring cars. Could you talk to me a little bit about how that came about and was it something you really enjoyed doing? I used to, probably about 15 years ago, I used to be a bit of a fallback for um, Hay Fisher. Uh, literally based seven or eight miles from my house, uh, their studios, and they cover British GT and a load of other stuff. And I used to help out um, and be a sort of sidekick for, for Martin Haven, who was the lead commentator, and it's now um, David Addison. Um, and then I used to... David Leslie was the, the co-commentator with Martin uh, for World Touring Cars. And I used to again fill in a bit for david because martin had worked for me with me at hay fisher and this was obviously eurosport but then david was killed gosh 2010 was it something like that um uh and then they asked eurosport asked me if i could do full time which was great and i've done i did 12 years with martin going around the world and that was that was a great um my racing was obviously my priority and they accepted that um but every time I wasn't in the car, I'd be behind the camera sort of thing, talking about it, which was, I had some real fun times with Martin, some really, really, really good fun. And the, the, the crew they got there were really good. And um, yeah, it was it was fun. Some of the, some of the Asian races or, you know, the intercontinental races you do from the studio in London or Paris. But because you, the English feed is the international feed, you had to do them live. So when you've got, um, you could have, morning warm-up at midnight and then race one at three o'clock in the morning and race two at five o'clock in the morning and it was it was a few times burning the midnight oil in um in Feltham in London but um it was a good crack we went to a lot of places nice places and saw a lot of nice people would you consider following your uh, your former teammate Paul O'Neill and uh, doing a little bit of touring car presenting on ITV if that door ever opened I think um for me, doing World Touring Cars, I was actually wearing three hats because one, I was there as a commentator and getting paid for it, which was great. Two, I was there with the wheel company in the background, so I was seeing what teams could 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 take wheels and where I could get the wheels into. And three, the, I was sort of representing Dynamics and seeing if there was any opportunities for Dynamics out there. So I was wearing it. It, it was a good. It fitted for me. Um, with with Paul, I think. He's very underestimated. He's very talented. He's very good at what he does. And I think he does a fantastic job. Uh, could I do his job? 
I don't think so. He's he should be on stage. But I told him that when he was in the car. <laughs> I said you you're in the wrong profession, mate. You should be should be on stage doing something. Um, but he's I think he's doing a fantastic job in um, very personal, very chatty, and um, yeah. Would I do that? I I don't know. I could be anywhere near as good as Paul. I do think there's a market for a Paul O'Neill stand-up night on the Saturday at every touring car event. Get a stage built. They had bands a couple of years ago. Why can't OEB the warm-up? Um, <laughs> you don't strike me as somebody who likes sitting around doing nothing. Um, so if I asked you what your next big life objective is, what would you say? Uh, I started up and we're trying to get Dynamics back on its feet um, because obviously you, losing the touring car revenue reduced costs a lot in the business but it also we do have overheads and you know it's where we go with the business next and we've, we've been looking at classics and looking at other programs so I'm, I've been trying to focus on that um I left the we sold the family wheel business Rimstock um seven or eight years ago and I started up another little wheel business about three years ago uh DYN Automotive still doing all the Team Dynamics products and everything so I've been trying to build that up with a few extra stock people, key people, and that's keeping me busy. Um, I've been doing uh, the classic racing again. I say racing around Europe and uh, doing the Goodwoods and that sort of stuff. So I'm I'm busy. There's not many weekends at home still, and you know because we're running a few classic cars for other people, we're away weekends looking after them and everything. There's you know it's. Um, I should be winding down at this time of life, but I'm not. I'm still, it's still pretty flat out. Sounds awfully dull, doesn't it? Um, I've got one more question before we move on to a final uh, set of quick fire questions. Um, but I'm not going to be the one asking this question. I'd like you to ask a question to everybody listening, something they can ask themselves in order to go away tomorrow and live a happier, more fulfilled life. It's your turn to be philosophical, Matt Neil. Oh, I've got lots of. Um philosophical um, sayings and quotes I, I live by and I quote to younger drivers and um, you know because because when I've driven unbelievably horrible cars or had a bad experience you know there's, there's I've said it to younger drivers and I said look a calm sea doesn't make a skilled sailor so if you can get through it then it becomes you you become a better more rounded more experienced individual and driver because of it you know the, some of the engineering input we, we call on now or, or have done over the last 10 years is is from bad experiences you know a bad experience is, experience teaches you a lot more than a good experience um because when you get in a good car then it's easy um and you can call on those a, f uh, um, a question to everybody else um i think just the mantra is just to enjoy the ride. Just um, work hard, fight hard, um, play hard, but enjoy, enjoy the ride. And and don't forget your home life, you know, because I did that. I was I, I would work too hard and I was focused too hard. And you you can't take the eye off the ball and your loved ones and the people around you because that's that's really important too because they're the ones who rely on you. I think that's great life advice to live by. Um, I'm going to end with six quickfire questions. They don't quite have to be one-word answers. Um, who has had the greatest influence on your career? Um, overall, um, my dad, 100% my dad. He, he's a driving force. He he got me into. I was racing bikes as a teen because I wanted to race anything, and he got me into cars just to get me away from the bikes. But 
cars was his his passion and um he was a big driving force behind me and he was wasn't for the faint-hearted he would he would give me a hard time but he was he was 100 in people i'd look up to as in races i think steve soper i i said to someone the other day i think that guy is the most complete touring car driver that has ever lived um in speed and in just determination everything um i was at a um bmw motorsport dinner in the early 90s because i'd won a junior championship and the the, the then head, head of BMW Motorsport, um, Heinz Karpfeldt was describing his um, works drivers to uh, to the the audience, and he said, "Oh, Vinkelock, he said he walks warms to the hearts of the the crowd, and they all love him." He says, "Chicotto is the businessman, and Ravalier is the thinking driver." He said, "Sopa is like the English terrier, where he bites hard into the bone and does not let go," and that is Steve. He is Steve, and I think he's a great guy, and I would. Um, yeah, one to emulate, two for for racing definitely. What lesson in life took you the longest to learn? Uh, to turn the other cheek, definitely. Because, as I said, if you come at me, um, I will come back at you, and I will get to a point when someone crosses the line, I will cut my nose off to spite my face, whether I whether it costs me dearly, short term, long term, everything. But what I learned which was with my first championship was to turn the other cheek. So someone like Jason or Ivan or everything would be knocking lumps out of me. And it was to, not to retaliate, to turn the other cheek and just to get on with the job. And I think that riled them both more than anything. Um, and I, it was a big life lesson for me. Do you think, I'm going to interrupt my own quickfire questions, but do you think they expected you to do that? Or do you think that's somewhere you gained a psychological advantage? Because they might have thought they had you figured out and then suddenly this... This Matt Neal bloke's not rising to the usual tricks. Yeah, yeah, because I've got a fiery side. I've got a really fiery side. Um, we could we could talk for ages on ones which I've probably done the wrong thing and I have retaliated in a big way. And um, with numerous individuals, they you're going about Jason, but I've had run-ins with, with Jimmy, with Ivan, with um, Reedy, you know, Fabrizio, Giovanardi. I, I could reel them off. Um, but it's... Um, yeah, I think I surprised myself with that, but it was a, it was a big it was it, I taught myself a big lesson there. What's your biggest fear? Um, biggest fear? I don't fear losing. Um, I don't know. I don't think I have one. Spiders. Um, spiders. I don't like spiders very much. My daughter doesn't like spiders. Definitely. Um, biggest fear. Um, probably Bathurst in the wet. <laughs> That's pretty. The V8. That's pretty. Terrible. That's everyone's biggest. When, when I watch those guys down there and it's raining, I really feel for them because <laughs> it's pretty terrifying. Uh, what skill would you still like to learn? I'd love to play the piano. I've just started learning. My sister's really good at it. I I tried to learn. I tried to get my boys to learn. And I went, look, if you can go into a, into a room and tickle the ivories. You'll have everyone in the palm of your hand. And James Toland is an absolute master on it, um, the superbike racer. And um, it's something I would always have loved to do. Either that or another language. I can speak broken language in German, French, and, uh, you know, and order a beer and that sort of stuff. But it's I'd love to speak another language. It's interesting you said piano. I started learning towards the end of last year. It's um slow process, but I'll keep you all updated. <laughs> um, what's your biggest regret in life? 
Um, if I'm honest, my biggest regret is my boys having a broken home. Um, I was I was very focused on um, my career and everything, and then my first wife um, sort of gave me an ultimatum to give up racing uh, because that's what she started when I was it was going well, and then I went through uh, some pretty dark years with the racing and. Um, I'm a big believer if, if if it's not going well, you've got to work harder and dig deeper. And uh, and I was doing that and she couldn't get it. And she said, you've got to give it up. And I went, one, one I don't want to give it up. And two, there's too much invested in me from from all these people. And I, I can't let them down. And she walked. Um, but then, so my boys having a broken home is my biggest regret. But then I wouldn't have met Karen, my, my wife now. So... I'm, you know, it's, I'm very lucky in that respect. And yeah. And my last question, what has a life in motorsport given you? Um, a life in motorsport, I was talking to Darren Turner at this because there's only literally a handful of people who make really good money out of, uh, out of motorsport in the UK. Um, but what it does give you, you can earn an okay living and, um, it's almost like, um, uh, it's a life experience, you know, it's, but you, you have a lot of fun along the way and it's all about, you know, I go back to the thing, you've got to enjoy the ride and, um, it can be very hard at times. Um, but any job can, you know, you can have some dark times, but then the highs can be really high. Um, and you can you just enjoy the, enjoy the ride of life. So, um, I think, yeah, I think motorsports given me it hasn't made me rich. It's made me comfortable, um, but it's given me some mega experiences. And I should probably write a book because I've got loads of them. But um, and some funny ones. I always say that's a good mantra for young drivers. Don't worry when it goes wrong because it makes a fantastic, funny after dinner talk. Um, when you're doing well, it's not funny. When you've had a bad time, it's it's hilarious when you look back on it. It's not at the time, but it is when you look back on it. It's a good glass half full approach to have. Um, Matt Neal thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure this conversation and uh, I can't wait to see where things go next for you yeah thanks Damien I absolutely loved that conversation with Matt what a fascinating insight into life in the BTCC did you know that story about them limiting the voxels to 70% throttle in qualifying I didn't and him stamping on the throttle pedal uh, to make sure he could get a couple of extra percentage of horsepower I mean what a tremendous insight that is into the marginal gains that made him such a success and over so many years as well but more than that it was such a genuine sincere conversation about life about the politics of motorsport and about what he's been up to since he stopped full-time racing can I ask a favor as you're listening would you mind just dropping us a follow on whatever audio platform you're listening to us on and also if you could pay us a visit on social media we are at motorsport mentality on all of the major platforms we'll be back really soon with another fascinating conversation until then my name is damien meaden and i'll speak to you then